Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? I know I'm a week late, but I wasn't here last week. Did everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Awesome. Did everybody get enough to eat? I hope you did. Welcome to the family room of Revelation Rock. It is just that as a family room, and because of that, I'm not going to have any pretense in uh, what I have to share this morning. It's not probably going to be the most polished, the most perfect that I have ever delivered. I was sharing with Martin before the service that I was struggling to connect what the Lord had laid on my heart, and I trust that the Holy Spirit in the inside of each of you will do that for me. Thank you, Nick, for sharing what the, word, what the Lord laid on your heart last week. Uh, before we go a whole lot further, in Mark chapter 7, we're not going to read all of this just on account of time. Um, Mark chapter 7, Jesus gives a, a caution and a warning to the religious leaders. In verse 13, he kind of closes it. He says, you've made the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down and many such things that you do. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in that chunk of verses if you want to look it up, Mark 7, 1 through 13. And it's a bunch of rituals. It's a bunch of things uh, that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they all had roots in good things. It wasn't bad things. It wasn't evil things. But Jesus, that passage of Scripture, verse 13, that we have made the word, that you can make the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, has always given me a pause, given me a, I got to stop and think, I check myself a little bit. Because I look around at a lot of what we do today, not, he, not just here, but uh, the big C church, the global church, how much tradition has come up to the same level as Scripture, and in some cases, over top of it, and it's become a higher or a greater thing. Especially, I look around at this Christmas season. I love Christmas time. I'm a Christmas nut. I mean, we, I'm ready for Christmas trees in end of July, 1st of August. I'm ready for Christmas music. I love Christmas music, even though it's all got weird notes. If you're a musician, you probably don't love Christmas music because it's all weird. It breaks all the rules of all the other music. But I love Christmas. The problem is we've, we've made this thing all tradition. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not picking up, you know, everybody, there's been all the campaigns, let's put Christ back in Christmas. I'm for that. But that even has become a traditional thing to say. And, all, well, we don't like Christmas trees because they're all about pagan this. And we're, they're not, really. If you, if you really want to sit down and go over, and I'd be happy to do this sometime with you, the history of every tradition that we carry, almost every tradition, including Santa Claus. <gasps> including Santa Claus. Now, not our modern version of him, but the, it all has roots in good things, even in Christian-oriented things. I'm not mad at any of that. And I'm not gonna, we have a Christmas tree, and I'm not mad at Christmas in general. But what I do caution us is as believers to not elevate traditional Christi Christmas, even saying it's all about the birth of Jesus, over the actual gospel, now, some of you might have just got a little offended, and I invite you to lay your offense right in front of you. There's a spot. we got a spot right underneath the seat in front of you. You can put your offense under there, because Jesus coming and being born is awesome, but it's ultimately toothless without Easter, without the death, the burial, and the resurrection. It's still miraculous, but it has no teeth until we finish it, which is why there's not a lot of Scripture instructing us to take a month and elevate the birth of the Messiah. But there's a bunch of in inference all through Scripture to remember the death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, Jesus said, as often as you meet, 
Remember my death, burial, and resurrection. Because it is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that the new covenant is established, which yes, Jesus had to be born of a virgin for that to take place. I just caution us against taking this time of the holiday season and elevating the birth of Jesus over the death, burial, and resurrection of him. And it is a wonderful time. I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want this to come across as pressure or as offense. I just invite us, I invite us to walk with Jesus hand in hand. It's my prayer that as we walk hand in hand to only elevate the word of God. During this tradition-rich season, may we hold fast to our commission to make disciples of all nations, carrying the gospel to all people. That's our commission. Our commission isn't to put Christ back in Christmas. It's to take Jesus to the world, to take the gospel to the world. That's my pre-Christmas rant on the Sunday we're gonna start talking about Christmas. The title of the teaching this morning, if, you've got, if, you're, taking, if you're a note taker or if you're uh, in the back and you're looking for a title for the teaching, is called Light of the World. We're gonna start by reading John chapter one, verses one through 13 in the New King James Version, if you've got your Bible. Starts, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him, in the Word, was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In the beginning was the Word, and his life is the light of men. The birth of Jesus was the first physical flicker of the Messiah. It's the very first flicker. Now, everything up to this point, up to the point of the birth of Jesus, Backing up probably to the conception of Jesus, everything up to this point was prophetic in nature. It was pointing ahead. Everything was pointing ahead. There's coming a day, there's coming a day, there's coming a man, there's coming a savior. And that's what we sing. We sang about Jesus, Messiah. You know, Messiah and Christ are interchangeable and they're also not Jesus' last name. That's his title. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And we've talked about this. I'm not gonna park there. But everything up to this point was prophetic. The conception of Jesus was the very first physical, the very first stirring in the physical of this new covenant becoming a reality. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the fall of mankind, and this is the very first time that God mentions a coming Messiah. He mentions, it's coming, it's coming, and it's almost missed. We miss it because usually when we're reading Genesis 3, we're reading about the fall of man, or the curse that comes, or Satan and the serpent, or Adam passing the buck, or all these other things, but we miss that there's a prophetic nature in what God says in Genesis chapter 3. Could you bring that up? I didn't give you that one, Olivia. Could you bring up Genesis 3, 15? 
There's a few things in this that I want to look at, but this is the very first thing. Following the fall of mankind, and we talked about this two weeks ago, when the cool of the day was lost. That was what God always wanted was the cool of the day. When that was lost, God the Father was the first to speak of the coming Messiah. And the defeat of the enemy, I want you to burn this in your memory, church. The defeat of the enemy was always coming. This was not something that after a while God's like, I gotta deliver. It was always coming. Satan was defeated from, the, from day one. Verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's kind of lost in this translation a little bit, but when it says, because it looks like kind of a tie, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Implied in, if you look it up in the Hebrew, he shall fatally bruise your head. How many of you know about uh, head trauma? It's a serious thing. Maybe some of you know somebody that's experienced it. The swelling of the brain thing. We've just gotten in the last not that long to where we can maybe sort of navigate that as humans. It's very serious. What is, it, what is talked about here, what God is talking about, he shall fatally bruise your head. It's over. And you shall only bruise his heel. You see, at the cross, the enemy thought he was winning. And we've talked, we're not gonna unpack all of this. The enemy thought he'd won. He was bruising his heel. He thought, I've defeated the king of glory. Little did he know that killing Jesus just gave him the keys to ultimate defeat when he would be fatally bruised in his head. This is the first prophetic nature, the first prophetic instance we have in scripture of the coming Messiah. So this starts it out from then until the conception of Jesus, it's all words being spoken forth in faith. Now we know that faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. So all these words are spoken, you can bring that down, Olivia, all these words are spoken prophetically out. See, when God spoke that forth, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin yet. In fact, Mary wasn't even close to conceived yet. There was thousands of years to take place before this would happen, but starting out, God, understanding the creative nature of his words, speaks forth in Genesis 3, there's coming a Messiah. I have a plan, and I win. The Messiah was coming. For centuries, following the fall, the coming Messiah was prophesied, spoken of, and countless types and shadows emerged through the centuries. Many if not all of these types and shadows, were not revealed. This is a unique thing I want us to look at. We're talking about the light of the world this morning. Many, if not all of these types and shadows, were not revealed until the light of the world appeared. You see, interestingly enough, that's how shadows work. A shadow is just a thing until you shine light upon it. You don't see a shadow. Light, I'm looking across the front pew or the front row of chairs here and there's the shadows of the chairs. But you know, it's not just the chairs, it's the light cast upon them that reveals the shadow. So at the birth of Jesus, that tiny flicker of true spiritual light, ultimate light, began to shine against the backdrop of all scripture given up to that point. You see, if you back back up to John chapter one, it says, in the beginning was the word. And Jerry and I have talked about this many times over the last however many years, about how the word of God all looks like Jesus. And for years, I thought that was by design. 
So God ordained everything to look just like Jesus. And I've come to realize the longer I walk with Jesus that Jesus is the word of God. It's not as much by design as it is by default. As the word is recorded, it's recorded and it looks just like Jesus. It reveals by default, it's his nature. His nature is woven all through scripture. So if we look in context at any passage of scripture, we will see revealed the coming Messiah and the new covenant. Because through the lens of Jesus, the light of the world reveals all these shadows that look just like him. The light reveals the shadows. It began to shine against the backdrop of all scripture given to that point and reveal the magnificent plan of salvation come to men. This is just some things I want to generate some thought here this morning because sometimes, and we've talked a lot about this in our leadership stuff and, and even individually with many of you I've had the opportunity to talk about this. I don't ever want us to get in our church mode where we're too afraid to ask the question is what we're doing working? We've talked, like, I don't ever want to get so like, well, we've always done it this way. Well, we're still going to sit down, we're going to ask questions. Is what we're doing working? You know, you can never run a business without asking those questions. And I don't ever want us to get so comfortable where it's like, everybody got their coffee? Anybody need a pillow? You can get a pillow. We're going to just sleep for the next 25, 30 to 56 minutes when Isaac's done, and then we can go eat lunch. That's not what this is about. I want this to be in a time of engaging. I'm going, to rev- I'm going to show things to you in Scripture that I've seen, and the breath of the Holy Spirit will breathe on them, and hopefully you'll be able to see things, and you'll be able to walk closely with Jesus and have Jesus revealed, the new covenant revealed. So this morning I want to ask you just some, some questions to kind of get your brain thinking. You think about it, <clears throat> we, are, we as humans exist in a light-centric way. You say, what? That's kind of a weird, well, think about it. Has anyone asked you to turn on the dark? Tuck your kids in at night, and like, Dad, would you please turn on the dark? You don't even say things that way. In fact, all of your faces reveal that that's an absurd thing to say. Could you turn on the dark? Our reference is always light-related. Turn on the light, turn off the light. Nothing has ever been revealed. There's another little perspective on this. Nothing has ever been revealed by darkness. You know, if you turn the lights off, short of glow-in-the-dark things, which is a sort of a backwards way of looking at it, the light is revealed by darkness. Anyways, you see what I'm saying? Nothing's ever, you've never seen anything clearer. You know what, if you just shut the lights off, you can really make this out clear. No, you can't, unless it's a light object. You see, unless it's a light object, it is light that reveals. Think about ultimate light reveals ultimately. You think you've heard the old saying about uh, politicians that power corrupts. Well, this is a legitimate statement. It's, we're not preaching on it, but power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts, or absolute power corrupts absolutely. I thought about that with light. Ultimate light reveals ultimate things. If you still got your Bibles open, we're going to flip a little bit further into John. We're going to read John chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. There's a lot of scripture. Olivia kind of looked at me with this glassy-eyed look this morning when I gave her scripture, like, you're going to do all of that? I said, yes, Olivia, we're at church, so it's going to be a lot of reading the Bible. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Buckle up. We're going to read through it fairly quickly. This is a story you're familiar with, but I want to draw a few things out of it. John chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple And all the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. 
Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus, this is one of my favorites. We talk about this a lot. Those are two of the best words in all scripture. But Jesus, stooping down, he wrote in the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Verse seven, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Verse 12, then Jesus said to them again, saying, spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus is both the light of the world and the rock of offense. He is offensive only to those who are seeking salvation by any other, usually some form of their own name. I'll read that again. Jesus is offensive only to those who are seeking salvation by any other name, usually some form of our own in there, but by any other, that's how we get offended. I'm going to read a couple more scriptures, then we're going to back back up on this. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33 says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, verse 31, but Israel Pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Back up in the book of Romans to Romans chapter 3, we're going to read 19 through 20, then we are going to talk about this. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20 reads, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Why? That every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." Light reveals things as they truly are. In the dark, we as humans are easily convinced of things that light reveals as untrue. Our ability to attain righteousness on our own or our guilt based upon ourselves. You see, the religious leaders, I better back up. We often think of light as only affecting our perception of things we see. But how many of you know that if it's pitch black, your ears can wreak havoc on your peace also? Think about it. We think of light as like, well, it's only things we see. Turn the lights on, you can see things. I guarantee if we could make it pitch black in here, you guys would hear all sorts of things. And then the things that you would hear would begin to shoot things into your mind. And you could see things. 
And if you leave it long enough, you can conjure up monsters. And my wife has this thing with mice. It's like there is no mice. That's the vent on in the bedroom, and it's just blowing against a little piece of paper, and it's, it's not a mouse. But man, in the dark, it's like, I think that is a mouse. To be fair, on Melinda's behalf, we have caught mice in our bedroom before. <laughs> As I, I was, I was going to leave that out, but I said, no, this is the truth. It's like, she's got a legitimate thing, but it was just paper blowing against the vents. But light reveals things how they truly are. You flip the lights on, it's like, nope, we see what it is, what our ears were telling us was a lie, what our hearts can tell us. The Bible talks about our own hearts can condemn us when God the Father does not. Our ears and our understanding, our own physical earthly understanding can condemn us. Jesus came to reveal things as they truly are, both to fill up the law and to extend grace. Even something as simple as stoning a person caught in the very act of adultery was drastically affected by turning on the lights. Think about this. This was something. The reason the religious leaders brought this woman, they had it locked down. This is day one stuff. If you know anything about Moses, you know that adultery is a stoning offense. We're going to drag this woman. We know she was caught in the act of adultery. We don't know exactly what the circumstances were around her, but there's a very good chance that she was in a very shameful lack of clothing at this point that she was very shamefully drugged before them. See, we caught her in the act. You know anything about Moses, it's time to stone her. And yet you turn on the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Flip the light on, and it affects even something like that drastically. The religious leaders who were seeking a guilty sentence from Jesus regarding the woman caught in the act of adultery never considered their own relative guilt when carrying out the sentence. Did you see that? We've got this woman definitely guilty. And Jesus never denies her guilt. He drags her, they drag her before Jesus. He never says, you know what? That was not a big deal. It was fine. Adultery is not a huge deal. No, it's not what he said at all. But what the religious leaders, they failed to factor in their relative guilt. They were like, it's all about this woman. And Jesus is like, it ain't ever been all about this woman. Watch. They were seeking a guilty sentence, never considering their own relative guilt. The light of Jesus revealing the full and complete law. The Bible tells us that he knows the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Talk about everything laid bare. Like I can do okay a solid 40% of the time with what people see. But man, you drag in the thoughts and intents of the heart so I'm going to go sit in the back, way back at church. Because my thoughts and intents, it's like not just the things you think about, but what you intend. Sometimes, I'm just being honest, sometimes as a believer, as a human, I have to stop and think, what was my intention? It's not like i got to think about it. I think maybe my intention was what someone saw, what someone heard, what it looked like to a particular group of people. You add in thoughts and intents of the heart, and Jesus navigates the law deftly to bring even the religious leaders who later we see him tell uh, the, his disciples, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of this group of people, you'll th they had devoted their entire lives to keeping the law and attaining right standing on their own before God. But when Jesus, the light of Jesus, makes the law to do its job flawlessly, 
flawlessly. Understand, this group of people that brought this woman, number one, it is an undeniable offense. All over in the law of Moses we see this is undeniable. She's definitely, we should definitely stone her. And she was brought by the most religious people he could find. They could find. They were the best of the best of the best. They counted their steps on Saturdays. They counted every, they had the right thread counts in everything they wore. Right, they didn't mix polyester and cotton. They were, I mean, they were, they were as perfect as you could get in the natural. And yet even they were not good enough to stone the woman caught in the act of adultery. Can I get an amen? Thank you, Jesus. The best of the best aren't good enough to stone the worst of the worst. And yet we see that carried out all around us today. It's like, well, you know, I might not be perfect, but we can sure stone that, brother. No, we can't. The very best of us are not on our own good enough to stone anyone. Furthermore, we're not called to stone anyone. The religious leaders, see, Romans 3, we read, verses 19 through 20, talks about what is the purpose of the law. Now, we know that whatever the law says, we read this a minute ago, I'm going to read it again, it says to those who are under the law, that what purpose? Every mouth may be stopped. Now, I can say this because she's not out here right now. My daughter's in the classroom, hopefully not listening. Uh, she is, I, when I read this verse, I'm not saying she's the most guilty human before God or anything like that, but I see, and my wife can testify to this, when we try to bring correction into her life, this every mouth being stopped, it's like, no, stop talking. You're incriminating yourself. She, and I think she inherited it from her mother. <laughs> that every mouth may be stopped. Because we are excellent. Obviously, everyone here, if you're listening, that was a joke. She inherited it from her dad. We are so good at when we're, our hand is in the jar and mom walks in. It's like, no, 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 but, 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 but. No, you shouldn't have a cookie. But, 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 but. And we can't stop. It's like, no, 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 but, but I did. See, but, but you know what? But Rhett, he was the one that, he opened the cookie jar, mom. I'm just, and stop talking. That's the purpose of the law. The law renders all of us speechless. I, I can't say, I'm so guilty. And you see this. This is maybe one of the clearest examples in all scripture that we have. They one by one, and you know it was quiet because Jesus, he was just writing in the dirt, and then he stands up, and it's like, oh, where'd they all go? Because every mouth was stopped. You would think one of them would have been like, okay, I might not be perfect, but she was, there wasn't any of that because Jesus administered the law. He shined the light of the world on the law, and it worked perfectly. The problem the religious leaders just missed the boat on what to do when the light of Jesus shined upon them. That's it. They missed it. They, just like the rich young ruler we've looked at often here, they went away realizing they lacked one thing. Some of them probably realized they lacked many things. But they went away. They chose the worst thing to do. They went away instead of realizing who it was that had revealed this to them and bowing and worshiping him. They should have seen, and I want, I want us to just get here in the story for just a minute. They should have seen. We drug this woman. She is clearly guilty. We should stone her. The law of Moses is clear. Let's stone her. 
And when Jesus did not pick up stones and lead them on the warpath, they should have seen forgiveness of sin was the word of the day. Does this make sense? They had before them an example of clear guilt that the Messiah just forgave. And they were, their guilt was revealed. You say, how do you know that? Because they left. We just talked about it. The law worked. They left. They're guilty. We're guilty. We're guilty. We got to go. We got to come up with another plan. We got to go. And instead of realizing, I'm guilty, she's guilty, he's not stoning her, forgiveness must be today. You see, you see this church? This is huge. This is a big deal. I'm excited about this. Jesus never said the woman wasn't guilty. He told her he did not condemn her. Implied in this is in spite of your guilt, I condemn you not. In spite of your guilt, I condemn you not. Jesus knew something at that moment that everyone else was unaware of. He was about to take this woman's guilty sentence upon himself. Not to cover over it, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, the atonement, the picture in the old covenant was one of atonement, one of covering over. And we talked about the idea like we can make a whole bunch of messes in our lives and then the whole idea of the atoning sacrifice that was leading up to Jesus was just to cover it up. We'll cover it up. Let's drag something over. We'll cover it up. And there was all the blood of bulls and goats. We looked at it in Hebrews. Just covers over. It never made anybody right with anybody. It just covered it up and bought some time. Kicked, as you, this is a, a sports term and I could be getting it wrong here, but kicked the ball down the field where Jesus was ultimately going to deal with it. And he knew, I'm going to deal with this. This adultery that this woman was caught in was legitimately a stonable offense. The law was broken. And Jesus knew, I am going to bear that. I forgive you. Go and sin no more. And I've heard this, I've heard this story taught so many different ways, and I'm sure many of you have too. Some people have taught it like, see, Jesus, it's not a big deal. Sin's not a problem. Not a big deal. And I've heard it taught as the last part is the whole, like, go and sin no more. So yeah, you might have been caught in sin, but are you sinning anymore? Go and sin no more. That's not the point of this. It's an instruction that Jesus gave her that we all know in the natural verb sense of the word sin, she did not listen to. Because that's how humanity works. Does everybody understand that? I'm not saying that as a, as a rubber stamp on misbehavior. It's not, well, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like he's gonna, that's not what I'm getting at at all. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. The instruction is don't. It'll kill you. The next time, I might not be standing right here and they might stone you. You understand that? It's, there's still, this is still evil. It's still wrong. It wasn't good. Jesus wasn't saying, this is fine. Everyone should do this. It's not what he's saying. Nor is he parking on this don't sin to try to earn righteousness, which both sides of that, both ditches are often preached. The point of this is Jesus forgave her. Her misbehavior was legitimate. He forgave her. How many of you know that forgiveness was available to the religious leaders? It was right there. But like I just said, they chose, just like the rich young ruler, to say, I'm going to go away. I'm gonna, I'm, they went away. Because they realized they lacked one thing. Instead of realizing, just staying there to realize just a few more seconds, I lack one thing, but he's what I lack. Jesus is what I lack. 
Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26 reads, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Thank you, Jesus. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of who? One who has faith in Jesus. The light of the world both reveals the truly completely guilty condition of all humanity apart from Jesus Christ, and it reveals the outstretched hand of salvation to all mankind through the sacrifice of Jesus the Christ. I think about this light of the world. We're going to stop here for just a second. I think about the light of the world and what light can reveal to us. How many of you know light can reveal the direness of your circumstances? For instance, you could be standing on the edge of a cliff, right at the edge. In the pitch dark, you've got no knowledge that you're at the edge of the cliff. You could be hanging on the edge of the cliff. Has anyone in here, this is taking a little bit of liberal license here to talk about this. Anybody in here ever seen the movie Maverick? Old Western with Mel Gibson in it. Anybody? Few people. Some of you are afraid of raising your hands. So in it, he gets thrown off a stagecoach and he's hanging on the edge of a cliff. He's about to fall. And until you realize, until the camera goes over the edge, you don't realize how deep the ravine is. It's very, 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 very deep. But what you don't know is if in the dark you find yourself hanging on the edge of a cliff, there could very well be a ledge right below, right below you. Everybody with me in this story, the storyline, hanging on the edge of a cliff by your elbows, there could be this far below your toes a great big ledge that if you just let yourself down a little bit, you could walk right out. Or there could be hanging on the edge a sheer drop-off for a 1,000 feet. And when the light is turned on, just get here with me in this metaphor. This might be a little bit of a stretch for you. When the, when, if you're there in the dark, you're unaware. As the light of day comes, you realize quickly, and this is what the religious leaders saw, there ain't anything below us. We're going straight down. Does this make sense? You're on the edge, and as... The light of the world, as Jesus enters the scene, he fills, he said, I'm not here to abolish the law, but to fill it up full so that we understand that it's the thoughts and intents of our heart just as much as our actions that condemn us under the Mosaic law. He filled the law up. He said, oh, you've heard it said that if you sleep with your neighbor's wife, that's adultery? Well, let me clear it up for you. If you think about it, it's the same deal. <gasps> oh my, a whole bunch more people just got guilty. You've heard it said if you stab someone to death that you're guilty of murder. No, no. You think hate, you're done. 
He filled the law up so full, the light was revealed on the law of Moses so that everybody, all of humanity is hanging on by their elbows and there's nothing below them. But that's where everyone, we like to park there. It's like, so everybody confess your sins. No, do you know what else is revealed? Yes, confess your sins, be faithful and just to forgive your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The light of Jesus also reveals the outstretched hand. There's a hand right in front of you that until the light comes on, you're unaware of. It's dark, and you're here hanging on by a thread. And as the light comes on, you both realize the hopelessness of your situation and the tremendous hope that comes through the Messiah. Does that make sense? Does that picture make sense to anyone today? That it's not just that the, law, that the light of the world comes and everybody's guilty. That's true. But also, the outstretched hand of Jesus is before you. The opportunity, the ball is in our court to what? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you believe, you will be saved. And Paul talks about it here in Romans 3. It's what? It's faith in Jesus. He is both just and the justifier. You aren't your own justifier. I'm not my own justifier. This gospel that Jesus came as a baby, born in Bethlehem, living a sinless life, dying a sacrificial death on our behalf, came to reveal our hopelessness and our subsequent hope we have in Jesus. On our own, there is no hope. You want to attain righteousness on your own? Good luck. You want to believe in Jesus? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The light of the world both reveals truly our completely guilty condition as humanity apart from Jesus and the outstretched hand of salvation to all mankind through the sacrifice of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. We're going to read this, and then we're going to be wrapping up. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense." They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed, but you. This is written to us as the church today. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Without a clear understanding of our relative unworthiness and utter guilt, the outstretched gift of salvation by grace, by grace through faith 
is not accurately valued. Does that make sense? So we don't know exactly what Jesus wrote in the dirt uh, when they brought the woman caught in the act of adultery to, her, to him. We don't know exactly what he wrote. But it had to be something from the law for it to turn every single one of the religious elites away. Something, just a, a perspective. Do you think that whatever he wrote also probably had some condemnation for the woman in it? Not because he wanted to minister condemnation to her, but because of the nature of the law. The law renders all guilty. And in that moment, she may have thought, it's not a big deal. She might have understood it's a big deal. I don't know. But in the, in the example of the law, we see clearly that all are guilty. But when she realized, just as I believe the religious elites realized that they were guilty, his gift of forgiveness meant so much more. Does this make sense? I'm not sure I'm clearly communicating. Without an understanding of our relative unworthiness, we aren't worthy on our own. Jesus makes us worthy. He says, I chose you, and I gave you Jesus. I'll send my spirit to fill you. You matter that much. But as with that understanding, if we don't understand that on our own we're toast, the gift of righteousness doesn't weigh that much, and so we don't value it that heavily. I look at the church today, and this is, I don't want to rant at anything or about anything. I just, we have the greatest gift so much of our lives, and, and I've talked to many of you individually about this, and we've talked about it even from up here. Our lives can get so focused on this existence. They can become so focused on your next house, paying off your current house, remodeling your house, buying a different car, getting a faster car, building something, tearing something down, having a business, making money, saving for retirement, having whatever the things are in this life, even growing a church. We gotta get more people to come because that's our rubrics for a successful church and if we don't get more people to come, then we're probably not a successful church. And we, this is all, we're here physically, aren't we, church? We're all here. This is, we're physically here, physically drinking coffee, sitting in chairs. And that's not bad, but sometimes we lose the spiritual aspect. The magnitude of this gospel is not about the physical stuff. All of that flows from it, flows through it, but it's not about it. We weren't saved just so that you could have things. You weren't saved just so that you could come to a body and encourage other people to come to a body. That wasn't the point. It was a byproduct. You were saved because Jesus loved you, and spiritually, you were toast on your own. I was toast on my own. I wasn't saved even, I was not saved. Jesus wasn't like, man, if I could get Isaac born again, then I could give him a microphone and I could speak through him to people. That wasn't it at all. This is the only reason I want to share the gospel is because as I walk with Jesus, the more and more I see how big of a deal this gospel is. You may be thinking, I was hoping for more of a Christmas message. This is as Christmas as it gets. It's a free gift of salvation extended to you. And it's not only extended to you, it's extended to you with the light of the world, highlighting your relative unworthiness, which magnifies the gift. Does that make sense? Is that, everybody, it's like the light of Jesus shows, oh, we don't deserve this at all. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for this gift. As the light of the world shines in our lives, shines in our hearts, 
I believe it gives us a clear understanding of where we are on our own and also this magnificent gift of salvation. Realized thousands of years after God the Father spoke it in Genesis chapter 3, there's coming one. There's coming one. He's coming. And all through the Old Testament, prophetically speaking of Jesus, and then Jesus came. That flicker of light revealed all through Scripture that this plan of salvation, this magnificent deliverance that we're incapable of on our own, the only way we participate in Romans highlights this, some of the Scripture we read today, and if you keep reading Romans, you'll see highlights, it is by grace through faith. All of Paul's letters, it is by grace through faith. That's the only way. The old way didn't work. It failed. And if you want to try the old way, it'll, you'll fail too. You can choose to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If you would stand with me this morning, I would like to dismiss us with a declaration. Also, I want a little bit of, uh, this is a side note, but I want a little street cred that it's 1121. And we are wrapping up church. Thank you, Jesus. Stand with me this morning. I'd like to dismiss Here in this family room of the rock, we declare with thanksgiving that we are a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. Because of the great mercy of God, we can expect more than defeat in this life. Knowing that our forever is complete in Jesus Christ, we are free to walk confidently into tomorrow in this life. We declare the boldness of lions over this family. Regardless of what opposition we may face, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. Thank you.